This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust. You're listening to our podcast about land, water, culture, and conservation in northern New Mexico. Today we're talking with China Dixon, the Working Lands Coordinator at the Taos Land Trust, and Ben Wright, the Education and Lands Project Coordinator at the Taos Land Trust. For the past year and a half, the Taos Land Trust has been involved in an experiment. The Working Lands Resiliency Initiative seeks to understand how a community organization like the Taos Land Trust could help foster a healthy, thriving, and resilient socio-ecological agricultural-based system in rural communities like Taos, New Mexico. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Taos Sounded Media on September 29th, 2020. So welcome China Dixon and Ben Wright from the Taos Land Trust. Thank you, Jim. Nice to be here. We're recording uh, today behind our COVID masks, and we're here to talk about working lands and to get an update on this project that the Taos Land Trust has been working on for the past year and a half almost. China Dixon is, as I said, our working lands coordinator, and um, so I'm just going to jump right in and let you give us an update of where we're at. Oh my goodness. All right. Well, yeah, it's wonderful. We were just commiserating on how about a year ago we did our first podcast recording of this and so much has progressed during that time. I think I remember a distinct feeling of, oh no, we have so much in front of us when we were talking last time. And so it's good to kind of be at the tail end of that and and be able to reflect now. So a lot of things have happened. We've definitely changed the direction of the program quite a bit, um, which we can get into later. We have finished the vulnerability and capacity assessments and the long With that, we finished the mapping, both GIS and and narrative mapping, which has been really exciting. And yeah, there are a lot of on-the-ground projects underway. There's a SECIO work, there's collaboration with community partners, there's food being grown, and there's new coalitions forming. So I'm excited to talk about it all. Let's go back a little bit, step back just a little bit as to what was the original Working Lands Resiliency Initiative that we kicked off. And if anybody wants to hear that original podcast, it is available on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Just give us a kind of a reminder of what is this initiative? Yeah, so this initiative was really born out of a desire to address um, multifaceted pressures that are facing the task community. One of those is the increase in development pressure to our agricultural landscape. Um, the other is the impacts of climate change and how that relates to livelihood, to water, Uh, to resource use and access and all of those things. And originally, you know, coming from the land trust perspective, we were also looking at how we could apply our skill set in terms of conservation and conservation easements to help um, rejoin some of these really parcelized and fragmented landscapes that we have in Taos. And that's one of the things that we really shifted on a lot is realizing that although conservation easements can be a very, very good option for many landowners in the state, that here in this community, when land really is uh, many families' primary resource, that it's not always the right option to uh, limit development rights or to tie this land up forever. And so that's something that we've really had to come into our own reflective space with and navigate some alternative options there. What what were the original goals? What did we want to accomplish when we got going with this? So initially, uh, one of my main goals was to complete a vulnerability and capacity assessment to look at both the relative um, and the absolute vulnerabilities of both the landscape and the agriculturalists to the impacts of climate change and development pressure. And so what that entails is a series of one-on-one interviews. Um, it also engages a lot of traditional GIS analysis and mapping And then it's also a downscaled climate change impact assessment to really see not only the regional projections of our our water supplies, um, but also how that will impact the landscape itself. 
So that was one of the primary goals. But with that also, there was a desire to create a suite of agricultural resources, um, a toolbox of sorts, to really help landowners uh, both increase their access to surveyors and appraisers who could help bring their lands uh, back together into production, but also to partner with community organizations such as Alianza, Agricultura de Taos, and Taos Valley Aceque Association to work on more of the infrastructural needs and the land-based just you know, on the ground, get it done, restore the land. I remember when we did the previous podcast, one of the things you said was that that this was kind of a unique initiative and, and program for the Taos Land Trust because it was somewhat of an iterative process. We, we had these larger goals, but we didn't know exactly how to reach them or what they were. It, speak to that for a moment. Yeah, so, you know, one of the, this, this project itself is called the Working Lands Resiliency Initiative. And I think that third word in there, resiliency, is one of the things that speaks to this question because resilience isn't a product. It's not something that we can check off a box and say, we achieved it, great, here we are. That in itself, I think, really defines the entire scope of this work and how it is iterative, how it's constantly emerging and changing and shifting with the addition of new information and with the addition of new needs that come from our community such as those that have emerged from the COVID-19 pandemic. Right, right. So resiliency is like in and of itself a process. So it's constantly something that you're, you're, you're looking to adapt to. And that defines resiliency as the adaptation, the ability to adapt. Yeah, and to incorporate change. Right. So th- we had that initial set of goals or vision for this process. Um, where are we now? Where are we now? Um, well, some of the findings from the vulnerability and capacity assessment have been very interesting to me. So in addition to looking at the projected climate impacts, which were, you know, pretty standard, of course, we know that the availability of water resources will decline. But along with that, uh, the impacts of climate change bring more variability and timing in our precipitation and in our, um, you know, snow melt and, and snowpack runoff. So that was standard. But one of the things that really surprised me was that in every single interview I conducted, uh, the lack of affordable housing was cited as the biggest impediment to bringing agricultural land back into production or um, to the decision to hold on to that land as empty space or open space. So just to be clear, so, you know, we started talking about this this agri- this this project as an agricultural-based project, but one of the big things that came up, one of the big findings is that lack of housing impacts how we do agriculture in this community. Absolutely. And it also impacts how we how we can engage with this concept of open space. You know, if I have three children and 10 acres, there's absolutely no way that putting a conservation easement on that 10 acres makes sense. Um, And so in par with that or in line with that um, is this idea that if that's my primary asset, that to turn all of that into agricultural production, when that doesn't necessarily have a very strong uh, livelihood or economic benefit, uh, outweighs the outweighs the the cost of putting it into development. Right. So there's a bigger benefit to developing it than preserving it as ag- or even using it as agricultural land. I think there's a bigger benefit to have the option to put it into development. What are some of the other findings of the assessment? Yeah, some of the other findings of the assessment are that our acequias are actually, in um, my opinion, you know, really really good shape. I think that we can look at acequias as networks of you know, water resource access and transport, but also as these networks of community cohesion. And because of the very 
uh, unique traits that our community and our community of Sekias continue to maintain and the the traits of self-governance and water democracy and all of these things, I think that these systems kind of prove themselves to be models of resilience for other water-scarce landscapes based on these water-sharing principles that come through. And why are they so resilient? Well, you know, ecologically speaking, that can be contested, this concept of resilience or this designation of resilience. I think that they are so resilient in my understanding, uh, truly because of that community cohesion and because of that collaborative engagement that continuously happens year after year. Because they're constantly being able to communicate with each other and... and Well, and because of the non-material benefits that come from that type of collaboration. So we can look at, you know, a pipe that will bring water from point X to point Y, but if there's no communication and no dialogue going on there, then all these other non-material benefits are lost. Whereas when we look at our Asakia systems and our Asakia associations in Taos, I think that one of the biggest impacts to resilience that they provide is this um, this water sharing and this imbibed, lived, embodied experience of engaging with one another. Okay. All right. So they're in and of the, and we've talked about this before, how Asakias are in and of themselves fairly flexible systems. And they've been around for potentially a thousand years if you go back to North Africa and Spain. And so they've had to deal with, that structure and system has had to deal with climate shifts and, and, and changes over a millennia. Correct. And I think this incorporation and this valuation of local knowledge really informs how we can, you know, scale these types of modalities to other regions, even if these aren't Asakia regions necessarily. I want to bring in Ben to talk about one of one of the ideas of this working lands or one of the things we we kind of uncovered early on in the working lands process was this need for equipment sharing for agricultural equipment sharing. So we were able to set that up this year and it wasn't a simple process, but it's working. Ben, why don't you talk about that? Well, I, I would say that there's still work to be done, but basically uh, through this year, um, through the donation of a private donor, we were able to um, start the process of acquiring some equipment that serves the objectives of some of the working lands projects. So the equipment that we began with was a, a Truax no-till seeder and a roller crimper. So those are the two pieces that we have acquired to be able to do this kind of work. We also um, have a, a sprayer that can be mounted on the tractor, which we're using for compost tea. We have some smaller pieces of equipment that you know could potentially be used for some of these projects. But it started with just uh, having the equipment, but then we, you know, we had to say, well, we had to develop a program around it such that um, we could make this equipment available because, I mean, we didn't, we couldn't really just, you know, uh, we didn't have the capacity just to lend it out for free, but um, we had to develop a structure so that people paid a certain amount of money to rent the equipment. And we had to cover um, our operating costs, including the maintenance of the equipment and insurance and travel time and, you know, any repairs that happen on the equipment. So, you know, we worked it out such that um, that people pay a certain amount of money that goes into the fund and the amount that we charge for the rental incorporates all of the, the costs into it. And we also received some money to that got applied as a subsidy to keep the cost down. So um, this program, um, I mean, I, you know, I would say that it, it went uh, pretty successfully for the first year. I mean, we didn't rent it out quite as much as we thought, um, but you know, part of that might just be due to um, 
low activity due to COVID and, um, and, uh, and also are, are kind of stumbling through the early stages of developing the program and finding out what people's needs were uh, simultaneously along with the capacity assessment, we were actually testing some of those needs in the field. Um, so, I, and I believe that the word is still getting out. We haven't really made an effort to get the word out completely um, that we have this equipment available. Um, so there's more work to do on a program level to really make it happen. But in terms of um, just developing the program to get it out to people that are interested, I mean, that has been happening. I think that the next steps would involve, well, reaching out to more people for one thing, but also I would say deepening the program a bit. So we're not just offering the equipment rental as part of the program, but we are also providing consulting services um, because it's not you know, it's, I mean, you can take a no-till seed drill and, you know, drill any kind of seed you want and, you know, but really the knowledge that we've been learning through various facets is really important to relate. And we'd like to share that along with the equipment itself, such as um, diversity of cover crop mixes um, and, uh, you know, some irrigation techniques through consultations with the TVAA. Um, but all these things are connected, obviously, and, you know, I mean, we're really looking at trying to help people to restore their land to some sense of viability. Um, so I'd say the next steps are, are really to um, really deepen the program and, you know, and further assess what people need, what, how people are using the equipment, and how we can help with that whole process. I'd like both of you to take turns answering this question, but what, what is the need? Like, why is there a need for an, uh, an equipment rental process? And, and what specifically is that need? Yeah, so I'll take a first stab and we can share opinions on this. You know, equipment is enormously expensive. It is outrageously expensive. And so for one landowner uh, who lives in a community where most of our agriculture is not large scale, right? This is not... Um, what we see in, in Minnesota, for instance. And so the ability to purchase um, a no-till cedar or a crimper or any of these types of equipment can be really off-putting for one individual landowner. But beyond that, I think also that the type of equipment that we have av available for lease right now um, is really going to make an impact on spreading the awareness and the knowledge of regenerative agricultural practices. I think that if we had conventional uh, agricultural equipment, of course, we would be using that in a conventional method. But because of the type of equipment that we have available, I think we really have the opportunity to create um, the snowball effect of regenerative practice in Taos. Um, well, I, I believe there's a need for both the equipment and the, the knowledge that goes along with its use. Um, because uh, we look around the region and we see a lot of land that is really not being cared for that well. Um, and, you know, so, and the result of that is um, a lot of invasive species. We see soil erosion, we see um, water, you know, whether it's rainfall or coming out of the acequias, not really being used to its full potential. Um, so, you know, we see a lot of degraded landscapes. Um, we see a lot of barren landscapes. I mean, places where there's nothing growing at all or, um, you know, the, the land just isn't to the place it could be. And I think that what we're providing to the community through this is an opportunity to actually enact 
take actions that uh, could lead to restoration of these lands. And this could be for both agricultural purposes and also ecological restoration. Um, I mean, the cedar can be used to seed uh, native seeds and, you know, pollinator habitat, like what we did at the land trust, um, can be used for that just as easily as it can be used for seeding cover crops or leading to uh, market crops um, or or crops for grazing. Um, so um, really, I just think it's important to... Um, with this equipment, just address land degradation and uh, water conservation. I mean, that's those are the two main things that go hand in hand, obviously. But I, I really think that that's what we're we're trying to solve with with this program. What equipment is available right now, and why? What informed the choice of that equipment? We have a, a Truax no-till cedar, um, and so by uh, no-till, that means that. With this tool, um, and you know that it kind of ties into uh, some of the healthy soils practices, which we can talk about more uh, in a bit. But um, basically, with a no-till seeder, the tool is designed to um, deposit the seed directly in the soil without having to uh, plow the soil or disk it or turn it over. In some cases, you know you might need to do that slightly, but part of the healthy soils uh, principles that um, we're trying to work through are, uh, I mean, the main principle is that you, you're not turning the soil over. And the reason you're, you're not doing that is that you're enabling uh, a healthy microbial community and you're not disrupting it by tillage. And, you know, and this could be a little controversial. Not everyone agrees that this is a good way to go about it, but there's been a lot of, uh, research, um, about these techniques, and there's a there's a big push in New Mexico through the Healthy Soils Act to, you know, at least uh, put some of these techniques into motion. Um, so with the no-till cedar, we are taking those actions, um, and we're we're trying to help other landowners do the same thing. And um, the roller crimper is uh, another tool also uh, tied to healthy soils principles, um, and that's used for working with cover crops. And you basically, like, say you, you gray, grow a, a crop of rye, but you want to follow it with um, a crop, you know, an, another uh, type of grain or even pollinator habitat. Um, then what you want to do is you want to terminate the rye crop, which you basically want to kill it. And since we're not using herbicide in these cases, um, we actually use the roller crimper to basically roll down the rye to flatten it and to kill it off so that we can seed directly into it with the no-till seeder. So again, doing this work without disturbing the soil. Right. So yeah, without disturbing the soil. So we are, the only disturbance is driving the tractor on the surface of the soil and you basically you're you're taking a cover crop and you're laying it flat and killing it, but then that cover crop becomes a mulch for the soil and it covers the bare ground. It provides a, a place for the new seed to germinate and hold in moisture in the soil and all of those things. And you know if you get healthy microbial life going underneath, then all that will be decaying into the soil to provide nutrients for the plants that you want to grow. And you know I mean just to reiterate healthy soils principles, I mean what you're really supporting is healthy microbial life and you do that 
by planting cover crops and grains and a diverse mix of species such that the microbial community can interact with these plants and and really thrive. And so, you know, it's a long-term technique, a lot of these techniques. You're not going to see the changes overnight, but um, by degrees, uh, you know, with the use of this equipment and applying some of these techniques, uh, you know, some of the the goals may be achieved. So we've got a no-till cedar, a crimper, and what else? Well, um, another thing that we've uh, begun working pretty heavily on um, is the development of high-quality compost. Um, so another tool that we're using is um, a sprayer that gets mounted on the tractor that is used to um, uh, spray either compost extract or compost tea. And um, the difference between the extract and the tea is that the extract is basically compost that's uh, thinned way down um, so that, you know, recognizing that the active component of compost is the microbial microbes that live in there, and, but you're thinning the compost way down and then you're spraying that slurry out onto your fields. Um, so it's, it's an efficient way of distributing compost over a broad area. Compost tea, on the other hand, I mean, it's often called aerated compost tea because it's uh, the compost is basically made tea, like kind of like tea bags, and then it's aerated using uh, bubblers, and it it oxygenates the the compost, and it it sends oxygen through the compost and through the water, and you do this for a period of 24 hours or so, and then you have aerated compost tea, which uh, is supposed to have a very active component of microbes in there. And so the, the sprayer would then be used for the same function. So far, all we've done is extract. We haven't experimented with the compost tea, but hopefully that's coming soon. What other equipment do you think we need? What is What comes out of the assessment and talking to landowners as to, to what else we might need? Well, um, the big piece of equipment that we need right now is a tractor. Um, a, a tractor that people can rent out? The tractor probably would not be something we would rent out, but more we would uh, we would provide the, um, the service of the use of the tractor along with the cedar. And, um, you know, we've debated about that because so far when we've rented out the equipment, we've rented out just the the cedar uh, or whatever, and then people supply their own tractor. And you need a pretty sizable tractor to, to run the cedar. Um, uh, 45 horsepower, I believe, is the minimum for it. So the tractor that we have is not big enough to run the cedar. So we, we have uh, rented out just the cedar, and the landowner provides the tractor. It would be nice to see if we had a tractor that uh, we either owned or had or owned collaboratively with another organization or something like that that then we could say, okay, you have a certain number of acres you want done, we'll bring the cedar, we'll bring the tractor, we'll bring the, we'll even, you know, make recommendations on the seed, and it's basically, you know, the whole package um, comes all together. And and there's certain advantages to doing that in that, I mean, we can really keep the maintenance down on the cedar because it's not really, you know, leaving uh, the organization. Um, but, you know, it, all of this, uh, nothing has been decided on how we, we do this. We may continue in the current format, but it, it really just depends because certainly when we rent the tractor out, I mean, the cedar out to many people that the maintenance will be a lot higher because it, it's just, you know, you can't control all, all of every, everything that happens with it. Right. And one of the points you made, both of you made, was that we want to have someone uh, be available, even potentially another staff member, to 
um, to be able to serve as a consultant, right, on how you use this equipment and how you um, uh, use these the healthy soils principles and regenerative agriculture processes to to improve your land. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's a really key part of the program, which you know we just haven't really been able to address uh, yet. And I mean, and I think part of it is just that you know, as, as far as working with the Taos Land Trust, we all have multiple functions and, you know, we we help one another out, but we don't have a, a designated person to really be that consultant. Um, so it's kind of fallen to a couple people to do right now, including myself. Um, and, you know, and but I, I have many other tasks. <laughs> China, coming back to the other parts of this, of the Working Lands Resiliency Initiative process, I wanted to dive into some of the challenges. Yeah, um, quite a number. And I just wanted to mention a couple of things kind of tailing off of what had what Ben had said before we get into that. Um, so one, I do want to emphasize that we have this equipment for lease at a sliding scale. So if there is a landowner who is growing food for community consumption, um, you know, and for food security, we absolutely can make uh, some type of, of sliding scale request. I don't know the monetary value right now, but that was quite a process that Ben and I got to dive into to really see, oh, should we do an equipment co-op? Should we do equipment for lease, et cetera? And this sliding scale fee for use has been the best option that satisfies you know both the needs of the organization and of the community that we have come up with at the same time. And then you know also in terms of equipment, kind of the dream list of equipment, We've been really fortunate to work with other organizational partners um, as a result of this Emergent Local Foods Coalition and the the different types of equipment needs, but also just the production needs that have come up. For instance, you know, more wash and pack facilities, um, you know, mill equipment, et cetera, et cetera, have also been really illuminating in terms of generating the overall capacity of our entire community to be uh, more sovereign in our food security. So what are what are some of those challenges then that like we keep bumping up against? Yeah, so some challenges, you know, one of the big things that I think all of us as individuals and as organizations must engage with often is this question of positionality. And so, you know, a land trust is often based in conservation easements. And as we spoke about, those are not always appropriate or applicable for every landowner um, in the world. And I think also with that, with any nonprofit structure and any development structure, there can be questions of paternalism, um, of colonization that come in and how we work to deconstruct our own knowledges, but also our own perceptions of need and what our role as an organization is in responding to that need. So I think the biggest, you know, maybe not a solution, but the biggest um, call for action that these challenges speak to is the need to continue to develop trust, but also to develop uh, greater collaboration and collaborative trust. So there's this interpersonal communication that we all engage in every day, and we need to work on that. But also as an organization, how do we continue to amplify the efforts of other organizations? How do we continue to engage in a way that responds to to the need of the entire community um, rather than these siloed requests or visions or desires? And so that's been really huge. I think that's always a work in progress, but it's definitely the the singular thing that stands out to me. So one one of the things you said was, this question of perception, like an organization can come into a certain place and have a perception of what is needed and then run up against the reality of what is needed. And speak to that a little bit more in terms of, of the work that you've been doing. 
Yeah. So, you know, we look at this at a, at a global scale all the time with any development work or any international development work. Um, and often these prescribed solutions that come from organizations are not rooted and are not based in local context and in local understanding of what both that vulnerability may be um, and what, you know, maybe the, I don't like the word solution, but for lack of a better word at this moment, what the solution may be as well. And so, you know, this could be the, the classic example that one of my professors always shared with me about cook stoves um, and a development organization coming in and saying, oh, we're no, no longer going to use coal with these cook stoves to increase better air quality. But when they uh, stopped using that, the smoke no longer kept the mosquitoes away and malaria spiked up. This was just his one case study example that he always Great cites example. back to. Yeah. And it's, you know, so it's that kind of that kind of thing that we get to see over and over again. And I think, um, you know, as a community organization that is rooted in the community um, and with many staff members and board members who are of and from the community, we're really privileged to be able to engage with greater trust. But I think also, again, looking at the structures that any land trust functions within, um, it really speaks out and kind of cries for this, this greater understanding and maybe critical examination of what our role is in community. What's an example from this project where the, the question of perception runs up against reality? The idea that land conservation is just plain old good and good for everyone um, because you brought up the case of, you know, uh, traditional uses of the land and that um, putting land into a conservation easement may not always be appropriate for many families and um you know, many situations. Yeah. And I think I can be a, a bit um, presumptive of us to assume that we know how to manage other people's land best and that that management would result in a conservation easement. So I think, yeah, instead of automatically assuming that or jumping to that conclusion or enacting that policy, um, it's really the onus is on us to work to, you know, use our skills and our resources to, to their listen. best use, but to listen exactly yeah. and to figure out better methods that really honor these familial patterns of land stewardship um, and also just respect the, the autonomy and the sovereign decision-making that every individual can engage in, especially individuals from community. And just to step back from that for a minute, I mean, I think it's kind of fascinating in a way because the primary tool that a land trust uses to achieve its goals is a conservation easement, putting restrictions, development restrictions on a piece of land in perpetuity to, to protect and conserve that piece of land. And what you guys are speaking to is that here's a land trust that's going out and finding in the community that, that the use of, the, of that main tool, the conservation easement, might not be appropriate or is, simply isn't appropriate in all circumstances. That is correct. And I think we have the opportunity to kind of pioneer a new vision for what land trusts can engage in and also to allow ourselves not to be constricted by that title. Yes, that is our primary mission, is to conserve land. But we get to do so much more and to move beyond that um, based on the real-time, real emergent needs of our community. And you talked about fragmented landscapes earlier. And one of the initial ideas of this project was how to unfragment landscapes. So what, what did you mean by fragment, fragmented landscapes and how the, the initial thought was that you deal with that? Yeah, so a uh, two-part answer to that question. Um, in our current conservation easement uh, regulations, we generally uh, place easements on parcels that are larger than 10 acres. When you're working in a community like ours, where landscapes have been um, highly divided, highly linear divided, 
then what we often see are these very narrow but long strips of land that are connected to the acequia and move all the way down. Because of this, an individual's land may not be that 10 acres, but often um, there are, you know, 10 plus acres all connected that are in these division or in these divided processes. So one of the initial goals um, was to help families rejoin these parcels so that they would then be eligible to uh, undergo the conservation easement process. Working with that, though, one of the things that really stood out to me is that while that can still be a good option, that wasn't really the necessity. What I think is more worthwhile and more worth our time if we choose to engage with these linear divided parcels and that process as a whole is really to help um, understand and steer smarter development. And so what that could entail is, okay, let's have these two acres here that aren't in the wetlands uh, be reserved for development and let's you know, maintain this open space near the wetlands or this agricultural open space so that it's not so uh, continuously divided by homes or by development, but we have that green space around any housing units that are established. And I think what one of these things that you're talking about, I'd like to hear from both of you on this, is that these issues of conservation, water, agriculture, um, and and even culture in northern New Mexico, I mean, this is true everywhere, but but I think it's particularly true here, are not disassociated from the rest of the needs of the community. We talked about housing earlier, um, but how these things are all tied together. So if you're looking at conservation, um, whether it's wetlands or agricultural land, there, there's so many other things to take into account. Absolutely, yeah. And we need to always have an intersectional lens to whatever work we're engaging in and be looking, you know, not through these very singular and narrow uh, foci. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, uh, I mean, when we think about land conservation, I mean, I've never really appreciated the word conservation anyway, because it, 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 it implies a, a static state. And as we've brought up, earlier, I mean, in order to uh, really work with restoration of lands and communities, we have to remain flexible and resilient and that kind of thing. But to add to that, um, I mean, I think that the, the land trust, I think, is starting to see itself, I mean, not just in terms of the conservation of land, but also the conservation of community. I think what has happened over the last you know, five years or so, I mean, like even reaching out of just the working working lands, but what the land trust has been gearing towards is, you know, not just conserving uh, lands in the traditional sense of uh, land trust conservation easements, but also working to at least apply the concept of conservation of land on a community-wide level. And, you know, and I think of um, the simple example of the planter box project, which we worked on this summer. And, you know, there was no conservation of land specifically involved in that project at all, yet we were able to extend the possibility of growing food to a large number of people um, and, you know, just throughout the Taos community. And, you know, and I think that the but the essence of it is very similar um, because really we're providing the capability or we're helping, I mean, at least the possibility of um, growing food to sustain families and, and communities. So, I mean, I just think it's, it's a, 
and that's just an example of, you know, another approach to the conservation of land slash community. Yeah, I think about how over the last few years, the land trust has seen that in terms of conserving, protecting, whatever word we want to use of, of land, there's these other pieces that are tied into it, which I think are just super fascinating. Like, um, we, you know, we've, we've come to sidewalks. We've come to um, uh, educating Taos High uh, or making making our uh, making Rio Fernando Park available to to public school students uh, to charter school students and developing helping to develop a walking biking transportation plan around uh, the community these these other needs have popped up that that are tied to conservation but really they're uh, specifically land conservation but they're really about that question of community resiliency yeah, you know, one of the things, the the same mentor and professor that I mentioned earlier with the cook stove example, you know, one of the things that we were chatting about at the beginning of this process was, you know, he was kind of interrogating me about the use of restoration and revitalization, et cetera, et cetera. And those was, words. Those words. He was yeah. like, why are you always going backwards? You know, and I was like, what do you mean? These are the words that we use, right? Like I was not critically right, attuned the... to it. You know, and he said, why don't you ask instead, you know, what does a thriving, healthy socio-ecosystem look like? And I said, oh, yeah, that's it. You're right. Thank you. And so I think as you're saying, Ben, like how we phrase this, but also how we conceptualize and understand and engage with these terms in this work is it has so much more immense potential than the boxes that we fit ourselves into. Yeah. Even the planter box. Correct. Yes. Even the planter boxes. (laughs) Exactly. Right. right. Hi. This is Christina Ortez, Executive Director of the Taos Land Trust. For 30 years, we've been keeping working lands in working hands. To do that, we need your help. Please donate at tauslandtrust.org slash donate. Thank you. This brings up to me the, the, the challenge that we've kind of been facing this year in particular, but really since um, since the purchase of Rio Fernando Park a couple of years ago with folks who are experiencing homelessness. Talk about that, you guys, and how that ties into, into this discussion. It's hard to attribute it directly to the impact of the virus on the community, but... Um... Well, I think it's a... I'm sorry to interrupt, just it's a... There's a larger question here, right? We, we purchased this park... And the idea was restoration, conservation, protection. But there were people that were moving through that landscape, even before the virus. There were people who were setting up camps there, who were using that piece of land to survive. And, and it's still happening. And it's, I, I think that there's a question, again, of, of, of housing and of economic uh, justice and economic equality there. It's a difficult question to answer at this time. But, you know, we have noticed that there are... Um, people that are homeless on the property. And, you know, part of our response um, should be to, you know, in the interest of protecting our property and protecting our, you know, just liability, really. I mean, we should say, no, you you cannot use this park to sleep in. You cannot use this park to to camp in or any any of those um, answers. Um, Yet there is a certain... um, desire to actually uh, be more compassionate than that and to go beyond the the rules of what we're supposed to do and say like, well, these people are here because um, they're not finding uh, 
because they don't have a home. I mean, number one, and for various reasons, they don't have a home. We don't necessarily know unless we ask, but, you know, perhaps there's the possibility of just extending that graciousness at least to find uh, other solutions. And I know you don't like the word solution, but other other pathways, perhaps, <laughs> other pathways to solutions, um, you know, for some of these people. So, I mean, I think really, I mean, as we do this work of land restoration and land conservation and community work that is around that, we also recognize that, I mean, even though we're trying to ex extend, throw the net as broad as we can, that there are still people that are, you know, not coming under the net of what we have been doing. And, you know, so I think that our work might have to continue to expand to include, you know, how to address situations such as homelessness. Um, and, you know, even if we can't directly provide that resource, we can at least work with other community partners to, you know, work on ways to help some of these people out. What I see happening is that, again, we're talking about conservation or preservation However, we, whatever term is, I'm not sure which is the right term to use right now, but that idea is tied into all these other community needs. And conservation of, say, someone, someplace like Rio Fernando Park or other public parks in uh, the community is challenged by other needs within the community. In this case, poverty, lack of housing, um, lack of resources for people who are suffering addictions, for example. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the beautiful things about being a land-based office. You know, if we were just an office where we were before on the on the road, as many offices are, we wouldn't be intersecting with these issues and these needs of our community in the same way. But because we're on the land, we're just receiving so much knowledge and also experience to engage in these other sectors that we didn't think we were going to be engaging in. Yeah, no, I mean, really just to add to that, I mean, really that, uh, I mean, this is, when we think about issues such as homelessness or or um, addictions and these kinds of things, and I mean, there's not, I mean, it, I guess it's pretty common rhetoric to separate ourselves, who you know we consider normal functioning people of society. The normal response is to say, well, that there's us, and then there's these people over here who, for whatever reason, can't quite get it together. But I think it's important to recognize how close we are to these people. I mean, any of us could, you know, pretty quickly be in that position, you know, just through a, a chain of events or, or, you know, just falling through the cracks. And, and I think that that's where the compassion begins is to recognize that these people are part of the community and, and that, you know, it's almost, you know, our, um, you know, compassionate responsibility to, not only interact, but to, you know, just figure out some way to help. Um, and I think, you know, as the Land Trust, I mean, we are, you know, just beginning the process of engaging with that possibility. Because we recognize that the work that we're doing, um, I think just by the nature of it, working with land and with people on the land, that, I mean, that is a situation that we're going to be faced with um, is, you know, just the displacement of peoples. And we can talk about uh, gentrification. We can talk about rural gentrification, which people bring up about the Taos area as much more money moves into the community. Like what happens to the people that 
uh, have lived there for generations. As you know, as the tax rates go up and as the land and water rights get bought up, I mean, what happens to these people? Where do they go? And that then then push it puts more pressure on lands that on open space, I guess, on agricultural lands. Sure. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's that's another topic. Is you know. Uh, with the process of gentrification and people coming from the outside and wanting to live in the community. And I believe you touched on it, China, just the, um, what happens when agricultural land gets bought up for housing. Um, but I think the extreme of that is that people not only get displaced from their homes, but they, they literally get displaced to the point where they have nowhere to go. And, you know, and that creates a homelessness problem. And, you know, when we're, I mean, I shouldn't even say problem because that's not really how I'm thinking of it. I mean, it is it is a situation that needs to be dealt with. But I think that to fully engage in the work we're doing with conservation and community, that we have to think about, you know, where are people going to live? And, you know, so really, you know, homelessness is kind of the, the farther end of the spectrum of uh, gentrification. You know, because it's really the the result of you know the the people getting squeezed off of off of the land, and a lot of the other issues that we face in the community, whether it's you know just you know a lack of a living wage or people who suffer uh, substance abuse disorders, um, those kind of things that we haven't dealt with in other sections of our community, and so then they start showing up on the land, and so instead of just pushing people out in order to restore or conserve or preserve or whatever, instead of just pushing the problem to the side, it seems as if an organization like the Taos Land Trust really needs to engage in with the rest of the community in helping to get people housing, get people um, jobs, get people in a place where where they can manage substance abuse disorders or or whatever that may be, whatever reason that they are that they would show up on a piece of land instead of just hiding them or pushing them off on someone else or putting them in a m- more dangerous position, it seems like we, we, we need to work on those issues also. Like that, that's almost key to a conservation organization is, is engaging with these other issues. So what, well, let's go to COVID. <laughs> so like halfway through this process, the virus starts. Um, we, we run into a, a, an entirely new situation that none of us have ever faced before in our lives. So how did that influence um, the Working Lands Resiliency Initiative? On a very practical level, you know, I obviously needed to cut my interviewing process short and that made sense. Um, just sit with people at their houses and have a cup of coffee. That felt a little risky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Virtual coffee. But I don't think we were all quite as familiar with Zoom yet. Right. Um, so that happened. But, you know, one of the beautiful things to emerge was this renewed emphasis on food security. You know, the, of the many things that the pandemic has cast into light is our community's deeply insecure relationship with food, despite being an incredibly land-based community. And having a history where we were considered at one point a breadbasket of the Southwest. Correct, correct. Yeah, it's truly remarkable. And of course, you know, that ties into all of these other facets that we were speaking of, of culture, identity, you know, health, security, all of those things. And I want to say by late March, early April, what is called the Enchanted Circle Co-Ad, so Community Organizations Active in Disaster, was formed. And 
That is a number of different entities. It includes, you know, town government, um, but also our hospital, our school systems. We have educators, we have pastors, um, and we have the Taos Land Trust, who is appointed to be the chair of the land, agriculture, and water sector. And so through this, it's been a really profound process of engaging with so many other folks and entities who are on the ground doing the work and really responding to the needs of the community. Um, but also there's been a lot of cross-sectoral education and collaboration and kind of this co-creation of knowledge that has emerged in how we address these immediate needs um, and these long-term needs of our community that have been highlighted by the pandemic. It's almost as if this organization should have just been meeting and talking all along. What other pivots did we have to make? Well, I, I can uh, address your question through the lens of Rio Fernando Park. So last year, to 2019, we had just begun a vegetable garden and we had the acequia coming online for the first time in many years. And, you know, we basically scrambled together a garden. We, you know, dug some beds and threw some seeds in the ground and hoped for the best. And, you know, we did pretty well. Um, we grew a bunch of food, but it was, you know, it was a bit um, haphazard and, you know, not particularly well organized. You know, we didn't really have people to I mean, because I remember when uh, September rolled around and we had a lot of food still in the beds and there, there, there weren't very many people to do the harvest. Um, so, you know, it just wasn't the most efficient. So um, this spring, I mean, we started off with, you know, similar ideas and yeah, we'll expand the garden a little bit and we'll continue to grow food. But then um, the pandemic hit and all of a sudden we said, well, this could be, I mean, not just something we do, but something that it's really critical to do. And, um, and just because it seemed all of a sudden just the most important thing that we could be doing would be to grow food here in the community um, and without even knowing anything more about it um, and how to distribute it or anything like that. We didn't have the information. We just knew that we had to, you know, make more beds and get seed in the ground. So right around that time, um, Corbett Wicks showed up with uh, a proposal from Vista Grande High School um, to bring her, not only her knowledge and expertise to our little burgeoning farm, but also um, a crew of uh, Vista Grande High School interns. Um, so between her work um, and our work and our Youth Conservation Corps crew, um, we had a significant number of young people mostly uh, working in the garden. We expanded the size of the garden by roughly three times, um, and but we also uh, expanded the the just through better organization and efficiencies, we probably expanded the produce that came out of the garden by about five times, I estimated. And, you know, mind you, this was with almost no water in the Asakia this year. So we set up irrigation systems, we did new beds, we, uh, in collaboration with the Native Plant Society, we set up a greenhouse in the winter um, where we did our starts. We're now in the process of setting up a, 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 a uh, in the ground greenhouse. Uh, I mean, meaning that the, it's a hoop house where there's beds to extend the season. So we're, we're have expanded the, our capacity to grow a lot of food. And along with that, uh, came the need to figure out what to do with the food. And, you know, just through various, uh, outreach efforts, we made connections with shared table and St. James, church for one aspect of distribution. Um, some of the food got distributed to a, a food bank out on the Mesa. I don't really know the name of it. Um, it might be associated with food nut bombs, but I'm not sure. 
Um, and then the third avenue, well, yeah, a third avenue was the Vista Grande families and students themselves. And then the fourth avenue was through the Cuesta Food Pantry. Um, so not only were we able to grow the food and we learned how to wash it and properly harvest it and properly keep the food growing through the whole season, we were able to get the food out to community members who needed it. Um, we didn't do, uh, we didn't sell any at the farmer's market or anything like that. We sold some to the food banks. Um, and the money, of course, then goes into the program for the internships and for equipment to run the program. But we really, um, I'd say, responded to the, the challenges that the pandemic presented. Um, and, you know, and it kind of actually like, set the bar a little higher for what we could do at the park. So, I mean, you know, if you're looking for positives of, you know, what the challenges of this virus uh, present, I mean, it's really enabled us to do something that we hadn't been able to do in, until now. So, and, you know, it's, and it's definitely a work in progress. Um, so the, I mean, I guess the short of it is that we're doing agricultural education. We're teaching young people how to not only grow food, but how to market it and how to distribute it and how to bas basically create a business model around the growing of it. But we're also, with the food, we are getting it out to people that need it. So it's, it's really been a powerful experience to be a part of this that is, you know, it's bigger than any one of us, obviously. And for anybody who wants to learn more about that particular program at Rio Fernando Park with Vista Grande High School. We did our previous, immediately previous podcast in early September 2020. Uh, we talked to Corbett Wicks, the, the, the teacher from Vista Grande High School who's uh, running this program. So you could review, listen to that podcast uh, for more information on that. China, one of the things that you worked on was a um, survey of um, experts and elected officials uh, to kind of look at what sort of policy changes, tax and policy changes, might be um, helpful in keeping land, keeping or in in getting a community more resilient as far as um, its its working lands. Yeah, one of the and this isn't a new finding by any means, but you know one of the reiterated statements that came out of that policy interview and the subsequent um, policy guide that we created was. The desire or the need for some type of in-between valuation of land. So right now we have the agricultural land valuation. If your land is in agricultural production, you have this ag valuation, which results in, um, which results in a lower tax rate, even though it's not necessarily a tax bracket itself. And then of course, you know, we have uh, development valuations, etc. But one thing that we did speak about was the desire to see some some in-between, something where if the land um, was open, but maybe was not an active production, that there would be a type of valuation for that, basically to create more gradient between these, because um, there isn't always the option for families to be in active production. But the resultant increase in tax from that agricultural land going into a development valuation um, often increases development pressure, therefore. So that was one of the more salient points. I think also, you know, there are some exciting policy initiatives happening. There's the Natural Resource Heritage Act, things like that, that are coming along at the state level. Um, but, you know, personally, I think we need to attune ourselves to our local policies. 
um, through both our town and our county and whether that's zoning regulations, you know, whether that is support for cluster style development or for more green space or open space, whatever these things may be, I think that's really where our best effort is um, and should continue to focus. Just to wrap up, where are we going next? What's going to happen over the next six to 12 months um, with this program, keeping in mind that it is an iterative process where we're learning as we're going. What, what, what do you see happening over the next uh, chunk of time? I would really like to engage in some more downscaled climate mapping. You know, we're experiencing drought this summer, as we will continue to experience. And I think the process of participatory mapping um, can really help build resilience in itself because you're engaging in dialogue. You're having these conversations about the impacts of climate change rather than just presenting community with a map of projected outcomes. So I think that is really fascinating. I would also say that the work that is emerging, as I had mentioned from the Enchanted Circle Co-Ed and from the Local Foods Coalition, which is kind of a, a subset of that, of that co-ed, is really important work. And I hope that we continue to do that. And I hope that the different agricultural and food-related and land-related entities continue to collaborate and amplify each other's efforts and have those conversations that often really force us to reconcile some differences and, you know, viewpoints and land management practices. Cool. Ben, what do you see coming up in the next six to 12 months with uh, Working Lands? Well, there's some variables to that answer, obviously. But um, what I would like to see is that we get the equipment sharing program a little more dialed in um, and make it available to a broader range of people. Um, and, you know, so I think we already discussed some ways to do that. Um, but um, I think it's to really, I mean, I think we've just kind of barely scratched the surface of what we could do with the equipment sharing program. And um, so I, I think that that will kind of come naturally, but, we, you know, we will be seeking funding to uh, assist in that process. Um, but, you know, so probably not too much at this point in terms of new equipment uh, outside of if we can figure out a way to buy a tractor, that would be really ideal. But uh, even without that, I mean, we're, we're probably pretty good for the moment in terms of the equipment we have to rent. So I think the, the, the greater effort would be in the outreach and, you know, getting it out to people and onto the lands. Um, in terms of uh, what's happening at the park, um, I would say that we're just going to continue with um, the work we've been doing. So uh, agricultural education um, and continuing to grow uh, food that serves community needs, um, continuing the restoration projects um, and, you know, continuing the healthy soils work and, um, and you know, there's going to be some expansion of infrastructure to facilitate all that. But, uh, I mean, I think we're just, we're on a pretty good path with it all. It seems like a strong collaboration with Vista Grande High School and with some other uh, school groups. So, you know, I, I think that uh, there's a lot of possibilities there. So, I mean, I believe we're just going to continue the work that we're doing and um, and the path that it naturally takes. Cool. China, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I do just want to give a special thank to, thanks to the funders who made this happen. Um, the Laura Foundation and Thornburg Foundation helped fund the initial year of the Working Lands Resiliency Initiative. And the Taos Community Foundation has been instrumental in funding a lot of the COVID-related work that we've been able to continue on to. We've had generous private donations for the equipment um, and many other foundational donations as well. So I do want to say thank you to our partners. And thank you, Jim, for, uh, for uh, talking with us. 
Yeah, thank you guys for talking with me. <laughs> for more information on the Working Lands Resiliency Initiative and farm equipment rentals from the Taos Land Trust, visit www.taoslandtrust.org. To support this podcast, like us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. <laughs>